So how to understand Matthew 25, 31 through 46, and then how to actually get into the practice of serving the least of these. But let me express a quick worry I have, and it stems from something about myself. I have a low tolerance for personal imperfection. I've got a low tolerance for personal imperfection. I can deal well, I think, with the imperfection of others. So when I was thinking of this, it was Billy's love of Del Taco that came to mind. Lori's love of Del Taco. These are imperfections I think I can deal with, the love of Del Taco. My own imperfections, on the other hand, these ones are harder to deal with. And I'll say, uh, I'll give a story on that later. But on the other end of things is having too high a tolerance for imperfection. We, we, we're too okay with imperfection. And on, uh, having too low a tolerance is bad because it leads to self-deprecation. It can lead to failing to experience God's love and mercy and grace. Too high a tolerance for imperfection can leave us complacent, right? Think of the, the, the chores uh, that, that are still waiting to be done. Maybe the laundry that's been sitting there for a couple of weeks or the dishes that are so presently in your sink and should have been washed a couple of weeks ago. These are instances where our tolerance for imperfection is too high. We're too okay with it. And here's the worry that today as we think about this practice of serving the least of these, this practice of serving Jesus, we're going to confront, most of us land in one of these two areas. Either our tolerance is too low and we're going to resort to self-deprecation. It's going to be hard for us to experience the grace of God as we confront how unlike Jesus we are. On the other hand, we may just end up feeling complacent and okay because our tolerance for imperfection is a little too high. We're too okay with how unlike Jesus we were. And so I want to aim to strike the balance somehow between these two things. And I, and I think striking the balance is going to be super important as we, as we read in our text today. Uh, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, it's in uh, the Bible's in front of you. If you want to turn there, page 994. Some of you will notice as you're turning there um, uh, that this text kind of brings a lot up. And this is my first time preaching, and so you, maybe you're feeling worried for me. And that's okay. Uh, this text is a doozy. Let me, let me catch us up to speed a little bit, set the stage. So prior to this passage, Jesus is telling a number of parables. And the parables have this as their aim or the thing that they're trying to show or teach. Be ready for Jesus's return will be unexpected. See, this is the message we get from these three parables. Be ready for his return is unexpected. And when I was thinking about this, you know, because the, the idea here is that we do better when we're sort of in the dark about when Jesus is going to come. And the, the illustration that came to mind is, is one having to do with Canvas. Any college students in here uh, familiar with Canvas? Okay, Canvas is kind of like Blackboard. Blackboard is basically this site that you, your teachers or professors use to organize your grades. And on Canvas, there's a what-if button. And the what if button does this. It allows me, on the page that has my grades, it allows me to enter in possible grades that I could get for you know, midterm or something like that. And then it'll generate for me what my final grade will be if I were to get an F, for instance. Why is this a bad thing? What's, what's wrong with the what if button? Because the way it goes down in my life normally is I'm using it so I can figure out how, how little of work I can get away with doing 
and still pass the class. If you don't have Canvas and you're maybe a little older, then a calculator will do the trick for you. And you, 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 you do these estimations and, and these, 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 this math to figure out how little work can I do to pass this class? Think of Jesus then through these parables as warning against that, as warning against trying to nail the day he's coming. Because as it turns out, when we figure it out, it can, it can have negative effects on our motivational structure, on what we actually end up doing, okay? And so now here in Matthew 25, Jesus, I think, is giving us an image, a glimpse of what, it, what we should be up to in the meantime while we wait for him, what our lives should look like as we await his arrival. So let's pick up in verse 31. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the text I get to teach on for my first time. And you can sort of feel, right, the descriptive force of this text. It's kind of intense. It's saying a lot. Let me just list a couple of things it's saying that come off a little more clearly. The first thing is what the final day will look like. The Son of Man, this is Jesus, King over all on his throne, in all of his glory, and all the nations before him. Okay, so that's kind of an image of what the day will like. It'll give us, a, it gives us an image of who's going where, right? This is the separation. The sheep, we learn, will be on the right, and the goats, we learn, will be on the left. And we know this about the right side of a king, that it is the side of honor, the side of high status. And so we, we can understand this is, this is the side where the disciples will be, and presumably the goats represent those who aren't disciples of Jesus. So it gives us a picture of who's going where, and then it gives us a picture, and this is going to be where we, where we kind of settle today, of why the sheep are where they are and why the goats will be where they will be. That is, it tells us a little bit about one of the difference makers between the sheep and the goats. The difference maker, one of them, between disciples and between non-disciples and this sign, this difference maker, it's a particular act of service. And so this is to make good on that first goal of trying to understand 
the, the point of this text, and it's in our big idea today. It says, one way we demonstrate our discipleship is, through our, is, is by serving the least of these. One way we demonstrate our discipleship is by serving the least of these. In other words, the evidence for our love of Jesus, for our love of God, is in part going to be made up by our service to the least of these. This is a way we show our love of God and our love of neighbor. And I don't know that this point is totally surprising. If you've read James before, you kind of hear a similar, a similar uh, message echoed. I'll read it for you. James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. Notice really quickly here the, the striking similarity between what they're lacking and then what Matthew was talking about, the least of these lacking, clothing and food. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action is dead. So our big idea, one way we demonstrate our discipleship is through or by our service to the least of these. Let me say a couple things about what this doesn't mean, okay? The first one is, this isn't saying that we're saved by our care for the least of these. This is not saying that we're saved by our care for the least of these. A good image to help us see this comes from Matthew 7. Jesus is referring to the prophets and disciples, I think, and he says, uh, by their fruit you will know them. Now ask yourself this question. Does the fruit on a tree, uh, is it a sign of the trees being alive? Does the fruit make the tree alive? Or does the fruit tell you that the tree is alive, right? Does the fruit make the tree alive or does it tell you it's alive? I think it's the latter. It tells you, it's a sign, the fruit is a sign of the tree already living. Same thing going on here. The sign of serving the least of these, this act of service is a sign of our already being saved, of our already following Jesus. So this isn't saying that we're saved through the care of the least of these. Another thing it's not saying is that this is the only way uh, that we demonstrate we're a disciple. Just serve the least of these and you'll have showed people your... No, it's not saying that. We, we know that Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, it gives us a lot of other things that we can do, that we should do, that help show that we're a disciple, okay? And then this last bit, last thing this isn't saying, that if we just serve the least of these, we're good to go. We've made it on the right, Okay? As it turns out, our ending up on the right, on the right side of God, it's caused by a combination of things, okay? There's multiple things that contribute to it. First and foremost, God's saving grace. For all of, for all of us have sinned and fall, fallen short of the glory of God, Paul tells us. So all of us are sinners in need of a Savior, and that we are saved is, is, is a gift from God. It's what the text refers to as an inheritance, something we don't do something to get, but which is given to us. When you inherit something, you don't do something to get it. It's, it's in virtue of something else that you get this. And this is eternal life from God. So those are all things this isn't saying. 
one way to put the point about what this is saying is just here's one way, here's one way, albeit one very important way that we demonstrate our discipleship through our service to the least of these, that we've accepted the gift of grace from God is, is, and that we're following him is being assumed already here. And, and Tim Keller nicely summarized basically all of what I just said by saying this, justice is the sign that you've been justified by faith. It's not the basis. You're not justified because you're helping the poor, but a heart poured out in deeds of mercy and justice to the poor is the inevitable sign that you've been justified, that you've been saved by grace. Back to our big idea. Notice this about it. So it says, one way we demonstrate discipleship is by serving the least of these. At least two questions might come up for you that haven't been answered by this. Here's question number one. Who are the least of these? Okay? Who are these people that we ought to be serving as a way of showing our discipleship? And you'll notice there's a little bit of space when you're filling. Um, that's because I don't think the answer is exactly simple to this question. So there's some space there to sort of fill in and track with where I'm going. So let's, let's camp out on this question. The text gives us a quick glimpse of who these people are, verses 35 through 36. And it does it this way, by listing their needs. The hungry, the thirsty, the sick, those in need of clothing, the imprisoned. Okay, for Israel, this probably meant the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. And now ask yourself this question, what do all of these people have in common? What unites them as the class of the least of these? I want to suggest it's their inability to fend for themselves. It's their inability to fend for themselves. Notice the way that their circumstances and their location in society renders them powerless, it renders them vulnerable, it renders them voiceless, it renders them marginalized. It renders them overlooked. And as it turns out, this won't be surprising, our current day list is not much different from this one. I think it includes all of those folks and then some. It includes those who are currently in nursing homes alone and lonely, haven't been visited and probably won't be visited over the next few months. It includes undocumented immigrants. It includes children who are being trafficked and sold into sex slavery. It includes homeless folks in our community, and the list goes on. All of the people, all of those people, I think, comprise the least of these. Okay, but verse 40 says this. The least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Now, this, I will admit, is this is uh, an issue which people disagree about. And what they're disagreeing about is normally when Jesus talks about brothers and sisters, he's got his disciples in mind. He's got people who are already believing in him. This is, this is the view anyway. And so you wonder, are those who meet that above description, are the least of these Jesus is talking about here, just those ones who are already believing, just those ones who are already disciples? There's a lot of disagreement where I land is I don't think so. I think the list definitely includes the disciples and is more expansive. And here are a couple of reasons for thinking that. First one has to do with household membership in first century Judaism. So the idea here is that 
uh, a household, it wouldn't be surprising if it included folks who were uh, pulled off the margins, if it included, you know, the widows or the orphans or the sick, for instance. And the way household membership went, uh, uh, they might thereby be a brother or sister as a result of their being included. And households would often convert together. So if one's convert, the whole household undergoes this process. But still, the state of the, of the, of the person brought off the margin, their, their religious status, their, dis, their status as a disciple, their spiritual status may be unknown still, right? Reason number two, look at Jesus' use of strangers in the list, right? If these people, if one of the least of these are strangers, is strangers, then, and they're genuinely strangers, their status as a disciple or not is probably unknown to us, right? If, if I'm to invite in the stranger, I probably don't know their spiritual status. And that's another reason for thinking brothers and sisters here could include more than just the disciples. Last reason, just check out the rest of Jesus's care throughout the gospels, the leprous person, the paralytic, the widow, the Samaritan woman, all of these people, we don't know for a lot of them what their spiritual status was prior to them interacting with Jesus. And why is all this worth thinking about? Why do we care to think about who the brothers and sisters refer to, who the least of these are? Here's why we should care about this. Because we should aim to be clear about the demands on us as disciples of Jesus. If it turns out the range of people I ought to care for, I ought to serve, is wider than I initially thought, that's good information to have. It's hard information to have, but it's good information to have. It, it, it acquaints us better with what we're called to as disciples of Jesus. So who are the least of these? Simply put, those who can't fend for themselves. And I'll make this last point on this question. I think we're better off in the dark about the spiritual status of the person that we're considering helping. Notice the way Jesus talks about um, those who ended up on the left. They were preoccupied with the spiritual status of those they were serving. They, they thought they were serving Jesus, and that's why they went for it. But notice those who ended up on the right. They didn't know they were serving Jesus when they were serving those who were sick, hungry, and thirsty. They were sort of in the dark about it. And so that same point holds that it can be sort of better to be in the dark about the spiritual status of the person you're helping because it, it sort of preserves our motivations to be good in that way. Okay, question number two from the big idea. What kind of service is at play here? Okay, so we know who we should be serving, but how should we be serving them? What kind of service is at play here? The passage teaches at least this, hunger, thirst, sickness, imprisonment, uh, in need of clothing. Note that these are all basic needs, basic needs. Notice that the passage isn't explicitly calling us to be miracle performers or to be people who, 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 who can do these huge liberations. Not that we shouldn't do those things. If you can, maybe you should. But just note what Jesus is explicit about are the meeting of the basic needs. And this is a service of love. When I seek to meet the basic needs of my brother or my sister, I am practicing the service of love. And it has as its aim, the thing it's aimed at is it's meeting the needs of these people. It's seeking the inclusion of them 
into the kingdom of God. It's seeking to spread God's justice and God's love and God's mercy and God's peace and God's righteousness. And all of this, I think, is an expression of love. So what kind of service then is that play here? A service of love. Now here's where things get tricky, right? Because we all, I think most of us, if we had to take a test on whether or not all of what I've said so far is true, on whether or not we believe everything I've said so far, on whether or not we claim to know everything I've said, so, most of us would probably check yes for each one. Yep, looks true. Yep, I think I believe that. Yep, I think I even know that. But then if you're like me, you notice that there's this really odd conflict between what I claim to know and believe and think true on the one hand, and then how I actually end up living my life on the other hand. Can you guys relate with that? And, and as it, it's not exclusive to practice the practice of serving the least of these. With a lot of Christian practices, I experience this conflict that what I believe and know on the one hand doesn't correspond to the way I actually live my life. Here's an example of this. A couple years ago, Corner Bakery uh, off Burkhurst and Ellis, how many of us have been there? This is the one in, in Fountain Valley. I'm sitting there and I'm, to make matters worse, you'll see why this is worse. Uh, I was reading Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm getting ready to leave. And as I'm getting ready to leave, I notice outside the door, there's a homeless looking person and he's in a wheelchair. And immediately, my mind rushes to uh, temptations that will help me avoid this person, okay? I'm thinking about how can I avoid the interaction with this person as, as I'm getting ready to leave. I'll list the temptations that came to me. If you can relate with them, I invite you just to keep looking this way, okay? The first temptation was, is there another door I can take? Is there another exit available to me? Okay, and they're gonna get worse. I'll just admit it up front. The second one is, can I, can I just put it in my headphones and I'll just, uh, I'll just um, make myself ignorant of what he needs and, and, and I'll, I'll pass him by and defer to my own ignorance? That's not going to work. Third one is maybe I'll just flat out lie. Uh, I'll just, whatever he needs, I'll just claim, even if I have what he needs, I'll just claim not to have it. And then the fourth one, the worst one, I think, what if I, I can just ignore him? I can just straight up ignore it. This is really easy to do when I'm in San Francisco, for instance, and I'm in a huge crowd of people and I'm spotting all the homeless. We can just ignore it together and it's easy to pull off. Here, though, that's not going to work. It is just me and this guy, okay? So none of these worked out for me. And it, as it turns out, I, I was able to resist all of them. And I, I, I began this interaction with the guy. And right as I started the interaction... My posture was, how do I end this? How do I get out of this interaction? How do I, how can I conclude this and keep going? And so it went on for about five to ten minutes, and it ended, and, and I ended up um, in my car on my way home. And uh, immediately I'm drawn to tears. Why am I drawn to tears? I'm drawn to tears because of that thing I noted at the front end of the sermon. My tolerance for how unlike Jesus I was in that moment was super low. I couldn't even meet his basic needs. I was too preoccupied with myself and my own agenda. And here's where the balance becomes really important to strike because most of us will fail at this in the way or in a similar way like I did, right? Failure at, at, at serving this person's needs, it's, it's inevitable. 
And so we'll either end up on one end where our tolerance for it is too low. And so we're subject to to self-deprecation and these things. On the other hand, our tolerance could be too high and we could end up complacent. We could end up being okay with not meeting the needs. And so we've got to aim for that middle spot and it's hard to do. But it's the balance that we're called to. And so remember my second goal. I wanted to help us, I still want to help us understand how to serve the least of these. How do we pull it off? How do we do it? Another way to put the question is, How do we fix that lack of correspondence between what we believe and know on the one hand and how we act on the other hand? How do we address that conflict in the middle? And a lot can be said here. In one sense, we we know how to do this, right? We tell ourselves, just do it. Just by sheer power of your will, do the act. Serve the least of these. Do the thing you know you need to do. And then we try and we notice, ugh, still it's not working. So here's how I want to try and approach the problem. I want to try and just illuminate two obstacles, two obstacles that I personally face in my life when I try to do this, and we'll see if you can relate with them. And the point of of talking about these obstacles is these are things that are standing in the way between me and, 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 and doing what I think I ought to be doing. These are things that sort of prevent me and make this conflict what it is. Obstacle number one procrastination. Any procrastinators in here willing to raise their hands? Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. See, that's a, good, that's a good response because as it turns out, procrastination can be both good and bad, right? Uh, for me, it, it more often than not is bad. And I have a professor, had a professor at Biola, his name is Greg Tanausoff, and he wrote this amazing book, probably one of my favorites, called I Told Me So, uh, and, and uh, self-deception and the Christian faith or something like that. And on the back it reads, think you've never been deceived, then this book is, sorry, think you've been deceived, then this book is for you. Think you've never been deceived, then this book is really for you. And his point here is that we all deal with self-deception. And so one of the forms of it he talks about is procrastination. And he talks about it this way. Often our strongest moral beliefs, beliefs to affect to the effect that we ought to do this or ought not do that will diminish or even disappear if we procrastinate acting on them. So whenever a moral belief moves in and demands uncomfortable action, life offers us the deal. Agree to act on this moral belief, on this moral belief, but not now. Agree with yourself to act upon it later. Often procrastination will cause the belief to wane in strength. And if you can put off action long enough, the belief might disappear altogether. The point here looks fairly obvious. We're all subject to procrastination, and it has to do with the way we sort of put things off. And I mention this simply just to tune you in, to tune myself in to this obstacle that often bars us, keeps us from serving the least of these, serving in a way that's just like Jesus. So that's obstacle number one. Obstacle number two, differences. Differences. What do I mean by differences? So I often think of myself as being radically different from the least of these, from those on the margins, from the powerless, the voiceless. And I can know this because, um, well, I should say first, these are perceived differences, but they make it hard for me to serve the least of these. 
And as I think about it, I like to spend time with people who are just like me. When I think about those I give most of my time to, they're just like me. They have a dangerous love for coffee or something like that, you know, and it it causes them to drink way too much of it. They're really good looking or something like that, for instance. Uh, Billy is probably our greatest example of it with his mustache. And what happens is we, we love spending time with people who are just like us, and we're in the habit of thinking of those on the margins of the least of these as being radically different from us. So here's the question, are they that different from us? Am I that different from those who I consider to be the least of these? I don't think so. And while my needs aren't material in the way that theirs are, and maybe your needs aren't material in the way that theirs might be, Note the striking spiritual similarities, the spiritual needs that we have that are identical almost with theirs, right? Remember Jesus' claim to being the bread of life for all, to being the living, to providing the living water? The bread of life, once we eat of it, it nourishes us and we don't have to eat anything else. He's talking about something spiritually deep here. The living water, once we drink of it, it'll leave us never thirsting again. Think of the way Jesus... Uh, heals us from our sickness, frees us from our imprisonment caused by sin, clothes us with his righteousness. These are the same descriptors that we give to the least of these. And as it turns out, we're just like them. It may just not be materially so. And Jesus himself looks like he makes constant moves to identifying with the lowly. Philippians 2, 7 through 8, it's up on the screen, says this. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Here's an instance of him identifying with us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this obstacle differences. What I want to say about it is this. Acknowledging how similar we actually are to these people to the least of these, should actually help us in to that practice of serving them. Because as it turns out, we're not that different from them. And seeing Jesus' identification with the lowly helps us to see how when we practice serving the least of these, when we practice loving them, how it is that we thereby practice loving Jesus and thereby practice serving Jesus. We, we, we practice loving as we've been loved. And this effectively results back into love of God and love of neighbor, making good on the two greatest commandments. And so if we want to be ready, Jesus tells us, if we want to be prepared for his coming, because remember, it's unexpected, the day and hour are not known, here's a way you can do it. Practice service to the least of these. Practice service to those who are rendered powerless, voiceless, marginalized, overlooked, and vulnerable as a result of their circumstances and location in society. And there's going to be a response question on the screen, and this is going to guide just a little bit of a contemplative time for us before we, before we sing. And who are the least of these in our midst, and how might we serve them? Who are the least, the least of these in our midst, and how might we serve them? And I want us to think on this for a second and uh, uh, maybe write some names down or, or identify some people or people groups 
And here's the last thing I want to say as we're thinking on that. We have a good opportunity today. If there are some of you who may not be committed to the way of Jesus, you may not have made a, a decision in, in light of Jesus' death, life, and resurrection, his, 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 his sacrifice for us, freeing us from the chains of slavery and sin. Jesus, today is a good day to respond to that because we have now in front of us, not a full, but a, but a good picture of what the life of following Jesus looks like, right? We got a picture before us of the demanding nature of the way of Jesus. And it's good to have that in view, I think, if you're going to think about making a choice to follow Jesus and to give your life to him. Because as it turns out, it's pretty costly. And it requires a lot. So I want to just give us the next few moments. The band's going to come out here in a second to just think on this question and, and, and pray and ask God. Maybe if no, if no one's coming to mind, ask God to reveal to you um, who, those, who those people are.